Good evening. Good evening. Thank you for having me. I flew in from England yesterday afternoon, so I'm still a bit jet lagged, and it's it feels a little bit to me like midnight. <laughs> so if I'm not quite as awake as you might expect, you know what the explanation is. Thank you for that introduction, and particularly for highlighting my work at HBU. Um, HBU like me to advertise the, uh, the MA program, which I am now doing. Um, if you like what I say tonight um, and are interested in finding more about our online program in, in uh, apologetics and the Master of Arts we offer, come and sign your name up here and we'll send you more information. But this is the title I'm going to be speaking under, The Heavens Are Telling the Glory of God, C.S. Lewis, Narnia and the Planets. <clears throat> and let me begin by quoting you some verses from the book of Psalms. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Those are the opening verses of Psalm 19. And C.S. Lewis, pictured here on the cover of Time magazine in the 1940s, described Psalm 19 as the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the finest lyrics in the world. And it's about C.S. Lewis and his view of the heavens that I want to talk to you tonight, and in particular how I believe that the imagery of the heavens, and particularly the seven heavens, is very intimately and importantly connected with his most famous works, The Seven Chronicles of Narnia. Can I do a quick survey, please, and ask you how many of you here have read at least one of these books or seen at least one of the movies? Thank you very much. I think there was one person who didn't put up his hand. You may want to leave now, but <laughs> um, hopefully this will still be of interest to you, even if you aren't familiar with these books, but they are among some of the best-selling and most popular books of the second half of the 20th century. They were published one per year from 1950 to 1956, and they're still selling incredibly well. I'm told maybe as many as about three million copies annually worldwide in about 40 different languages. An incredible success. But I wonder if you've ever sat back from your enjoyment of these stories and asked yourself why it is that Lewis wrote the books the way that he did. When Lewis read aloud the first few chapters of the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, to his great friend J.R.R.R.R. Tolkien, uh, <laughs> Tolkien strongly took against what he was hearing in those opening chapters. He, he thought that Lewis had assembled the story very carelessly, without much imaginative logic. 
English children alongside centaurs and fauns from Greek and Roman mythology, alongside a white witch character straight out of the pages of Hans Anderson fairy tale, alongside Father Christmas, for goodness sake, what's he doing in this story? Tolkien thought it was an abomination that you shouldn't throw all these things together in the same story, that that there was no rhyme or reason, that there, there was no imaginative coherence to the to the way that Lewis was setting up this imagined world. Lewis loved The Lord of the Rings, and indeed Tolkien admits that if it hadn't been for Lewis's endless encouragement, he would probably never have completed writing The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien hated Narnia. (laughs) I think that's not too strong a word. Uh, George Sayer, who knew both men very well, says in his biography of C.S. Lewis that, that Tolkien strongly detested, those are his words, strongly detested the way Lewis assembled the Narnian world out of what he, Tolkien, considered to be very incompatible mythological traditions. And on the surface, Tolkien's attitude to the stories is, you know, is well warranted. Yeah, the, they, the books do seem to be comprised out of very various literary materials, don't they? I mean, you, you can't deny it. The only question is, why would Lewis do something which is seemingly so random? And indeed, is it actually random or is it just apparently random? Because Lewis was not the kind of writer who did things randomly or carelessly. He was a very rigorous and consistent thinker. If you know Lewis's poetry, for example, Lewis's own poetry is fantastically complex and intricate. You look at some of Lewis's poems, you think you've worked out the rhyme scheme and the meter. Then you look a bit more closely and you find a whole other dimension of complexity beneath the one you first noticed. Lewis once said that he was enamored of metrical and phonetic subtleties. And the poems which look as if they're in free verse are often in the most complicated meters of all. Lewis loved studying medieval writing. I mean, that was his professional expertise in the medieval literature. And he says that many of the greatest writers of the Middle Ages love to present us with something which can't be taken in at a glance. Everything leads to everything else in these writers, he says, but often by very intricate paths. Complexity, he adds, is a mark of the medieval mind. And as a medievally minded writer and thinker himself, we could expect Lewis to follow the example of these authors that he studied so closely. And then as a Christian too, Lewis believed that the universe itself is a fantastically intricate work of divine artistry. Every single thing in creation having been made by God for a purpose, both for its own sake and for the sake of every other created thing. We have peculiar ends and we have interdependent ends. And it's all there in the mind of God. We may not be able to work out the the purpose of any given individual thing. You know, there's lots that's inexplicable in this world, yes. But Lewis believes that God is working his purposes out, that there is intelligent design in this universe. Down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect, as he puts it in his book on prayer. There are no accidents, as he has puddle glum, say, in one of the Narnia books. 
There may seem to be accidents, yes. But ultimately, probably not. So you put those things together. Lewis's own complex poetry, his love of complex medieval writings, his belief in God's complex creativity. You turn back to Narnia and its supposed hodgepodge nature, its mishmash nature. Can that really be so? Did Tolkien laugh too soon? He didn't know the books at all well. He gave up reading them when they began to be published and once confessed that they were entirely outside his range of imaginative sympathy. (laughs) So we shouldn't put any weight on Tolkien's view. He hardly knew the books, actually. But because Tolkien has become so famous, a lot of people have latched on to his view that Narnia is indeed a mishmash, that it was thrown together in a pretty random or chaotic fashion one afternoon and that Lewis was just kicking back and having fun. But that's not at all plausible. Not when you know these are the things about Lewis's interests. And yet, Tolkien is right that on the surface the books do seem to be a bit of a jumble. So what's going on? We've got a bit of cognitive dissonance here. Well, this cognitive dissonance has led lots of Lewis scholars and critics to say, yes, on the surface the books look like a bit of a jumble, but we know Lewis to be so interested in complexity and intricacy that the books must be more finely tuned, more intelligently designed at the secondary level of the of the biblical parallels within the story and lewis himself once admitted that the whole narnia series is about christ those are lewis's words the whole narnia series is about christ and it is the christ character aslan the lion king who is the only character who appears in all seven books so maybe we should look to biblical and christological themes within the series to find an overarching pattern and design to the series. Aslan is very evidently Christ-like, particularly in these three books, isn't he? In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we have a a Narnian version of the Gospel story. In The Magician's Nephew, we have a Narnian version of the creation account from Genesis. In The Last Battle, we have a very obvious Narnian retelling of the Apocalypse and the Final Judgment. All well and good, yes. But these are only three out of seven books. This is less than half the series. (laughs) What about the other four books? When you turn to these four, Aslan is still present, yes. He's still Christ-like in various ways. You know, he teaches people, he guides people. But there's no very obvious biblical episode that Lewis is reimagining in these four books. I mean, you might have expected, excuse me, You might have expected Lewis to, I don't know, give us a whole Narnian story about the birth of Aslan. You know, a a Narnian Christmas story. Aslan being born into Narnia as a lion cub. (laughs) But you don't get that. You don't have a Narnian equivalent of the Ascension story. You don't have a Narnian equivalent of Pentecost. Why not? Given, Given what Lewis has done in these three books... That's perhaps what you would have expected him to do in the other four, but you don't get that. In What do you get? In Prince Caspian, Aslan enters the story amongst dancing trees before giving a great war cry. 
In the Dawn Treader, Aslan is seen flying in a sunbeam. He's encountered at the edge of the world, scattering light from his mane. In the Silver Chair, Aslan doesn't actually come down to Narnia at all, but is confined to his own high country above the clouds, which doesn't seem a very Christian way of depicting your Christ character, if he's not incarnated into the magical world, but is still up in a kind of heaven. That would be more like a, a Jewish way of depicting your divine character. So what, what's going on there? And then in The Horse and His Boy, Aslan is mistaken for two lions or maybe three lions and we're told he does a great deal of dashing about in that story there was only one lion but he was swift of foot so why has lewis chosen to make his christ character swift of foot in this particular story i mean i don't recall jesus doing a lot of running in the new testament or having a special ministry to athletes why has lewis turned his christ character into a sprinter i mean if you pushed at these issues, no doubt you could find certain biblical parallels, but not one sort of overarching dominant theme which would account for the whole of each book in the way that we can find dominant themes in these three. So if we're coming at the series from this biblical point of view, trying to find a, a kind of uniform design or imaginative scheme or creative logic to to the books which comports with Lewis's evident interest in and love for complexity and intricacy, well, we don't do very much better than when we just consider the books at the purely literary or mythological level. They seem to be as much a hodgepodge or almost as much a hodgepodge at the biblical level as they do when we consider them just as stories. And yet we still have this fact that Lewis is so very interested in complexity and intricacy of all kinds. My poems look as if they're in free verse, but actually they are in the most complicated meters of all. Medieval writers present us with something which looks planless when all is planned, he says. Okay, so maybe there's an additional level of complexity. You've got the literary level, you've got the biblical parallels. Maybe there's a fundamental DNA, imaginatively speaking, to these chronicles. Is, is there some other theme that ties the series together a bit more satisfactorily? And all sorts of different theories have been suggested. Maybe the seven deadly sins. Maybe the seven sacraments. Maybe the seven books of Spencer's Fairy Queen. Maybe the seven traditional virtues. All sorts of different sevens have been suggested. I myself once made a half-hearted attempt to link the chronicles to different plays by Shakespeare. But I soon abandoned that idea because, you know, it accounted well for four or five, but for the, the other remaining chronicles, you really had to do some crowbarring to make, to make them fit. Well, it was when I was halfway through my PhD researches into Lewis's theological imagination that I believe I stumbled across the real answer to this imaginative conundrum, which these chronicles present. It was about 11.30 at night in February, one Wednesday night in February, when I was reading a poem that Lewis wrote when an idea occurred to me. And that's what I want to share with you tonight, uh, basically. Um, that idea, which turned into this book, Planet Narnia. The book then 
became a, a BBC television documentary called The Narnia Code. Please excuse the terrible title. It's got nothing to do with the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> this is serious scholarship. Um, but you've got to sell books. You've got to attract attention for your documentary. Um, so it's the substance of these two works that I want to share with you tonight. And I've already used up about 20 minutes of my time. We're going to have to motor through the rest of the hour. And after I've spoken uh, for until maybe five past eight or something like that, then we can have a period of questions and answers, uh, if that's okay. But if anybody needs to leave at that point before the Q&A, by all means do. Now, it's a very big claim that I'm making, that Lewis had a secret but intentional plan to the Narnia books, which he told nobody about, not even close friends like Tolkien, and which nobody noticed for several decades until I came along and discovered it. You know, I mean, how arrogant a claim is that? <laughs> that is preposterous. Uh, if anyone claimed to me, came to me with such a claim, I would look at them very carefully before believing them. Um, so before we come on to the substance of this argument, can I give you five quick background reasons as to why actually this is not so implausible a thing after all, but, but it's actually pretty much what we ought to expect Lewis to do if we know the kind of man we're dealing with. So here are the five quick background reasons before we come on to the substance of the case itself. And the first of them has to do with C.S. Lewis himself. He could be very secretive when he wanted to be. Jack never ceased to be secretive. That's the verdict of George Sayer in his biography of Lewis. You know he was called Jack. He didn't like the name Clive, and he liked the name Staples even less. So he was always known as Jack. Jack never ceased to be secretive. That's the verdict of George Sayer, who knew Lewis for 30 years. He never ceased to be secretive. What did Sayer mean by that? Well, just to give you two examples. His marriage. When Lewis got married in his late 50s, he kept his marriage secret for the best part of a year. You know he married Joy Davidman twice. First of all, in a civil ceremony that was secret, and then later in a Christian ceremony. But the first marriage was secret. Nobody was told, not even close friends like Tolkien. Now, a man who can keep his marriage secret can keep almost anything secret. <laughs> but that's not the only example we have. There are many examples, and just to give you one other... Surprised by joy, Lewis's autobiography left out so many really important things about his early life that one of his friends jokingly said the book should not have been called Surprised by Joy. It should have been called Suppressed by Jack. <laughs> and there are many other examples, but we don't have time to go into that. All I'm saying here is that this is a man who could, when he wanted to, keep very major secrets. Of course, it proves nothing about Narnia, but it at least helps us to realize the kind of man we're dealing with. So that's the, the kind of temperamental or, or psychological background point, if you like. Now, the epistemological background point. Epistemology is the science of consciousness, how we know things. And Lewis once said, an influence which can't evade our consciousness won't go very deep. Let me give you a terribly quick rundown of his theory of consciousness. If you know his meditation in a tool shed, you will know all about this. He pictures himself standing in the darkness of his tool shed one sunny day. It's bright outside, 
It's dark inside the shed, and through a crack at the top of the door, he can see a beam of light slanting down through the darkness. He can see little particles of dust floating in the beam. It lights up a patch of the floor. Now, this is his image of one kind of consciousness that we have, which he calls contemplation, looking at something from the outside. When we are inspecting something from a distance, uninvolved, neutral, objective, detached knowledge. That's one way in which we know things, okay? But then he shifts his position so that the beam of light is no longer falling on the floor, but is now falling directly on his own eyeballs. Instantly, the whole picture changes. He says, I no longer saw the tool shed. And most importantly, I no longer even saw the beam of light. Because I now saw along the beam of light. I saw the crack at the top of the door. I saw the leaves on the tree waving in the wind outside. Millions of miles away, I saw the sun itself. And this, of course, is his image of the second kind of consciousness that we have, which he calls enjoyment. When you are involved, you're not detached and external. You are inhabiting the thing you are knowing. You are committed to it. You are inside it. Think of the two verbs to know in Spanish, saber and conocer. Knowledge about something from the outside, knowledge of something from the inside. All our conscious life, Lewis says, operates in one or other of these two modes. And you can't do them both at once. So when Lewis says an influence which can't evade our consciousness won't go very deep, what he means is an influence which can't evade our contemplative consciousness. For as long as we are inspecting something from an external perspective, it won't go very deep. We need to step inside certain things in order to get the deeper kind of knowledge. But the interesting thing is that when you look along the beam, the beam vanishes. It's no longer the object of your vision. It's now the medium of your vision. Light is not so much something we see as it is something we see by. When you look along the beam, the beam vanishes. So that's our second background point epistemology. Thirdly, theology and, and Christology, really. Lewis was interested in this verse from Colossians. For all things were created through Christ and for Christ, and in Christ all things hold together. Lewis was sufficiently interested in this verse to paraphrase it in one of his books. He, he paraphrases it as, Christ is the all-pervasive principle of cohesion, whereby the universe holds together. Christ is the all-pervasive principle of cohesion, whereby the universe holds together. Now remember, he says that Narnia is all about Christ. And when we hear him say that, we tend to fixate immediately upon Aslan, the incarnate word, so to speak. And we tend to forget about this aspect of Christ, the, the, what we might call the discarnate or the unincarnate word, the, the word which has created all things, which is sustaining all things, in whom all things hold together. We tend to think less about that aspect of Christ because it's much harder to conceptualize. It's almost impossible to conceptualize because all things hold together in Christ. 
including our very ability to think about Christ. We can't, in that sense, step outside Christ and look back at him as if from some external spectator's point of view. You, you can't get out because all things hold together in Christ. You can't look at this beam of light. You can only look along it. And that puts us into something of a predicament, which Lewis homes in on in his book Miracles, where he says, the fact which is in one respect the most obvious and primary fact, that is to say God, the, the Trinitarian God, and through which alone you have access to all the other facts, may be precisely the one that is most easily forgotten. Not because it's so remote or abstruse, but because it's so near and so obvious. That is exactly how the supernatural has been forgotten. The divine nature is closer to us than we are to ourselves. We know God, actually, before we know anything else. God is the very principle by which we know anything. And therefore can be overlooked. Like, you know, the, the nose on your face, it, you just, you can't see it. If you want to hide something, put it in the open. And to that extent, God is hidden from us by virtue of his very omnipresence. So when Lewis says the whole Narnia series is about Christ, how is he going to depict this aspect of Christ? The cosmic Christ, the omnipresent Christ, the one in whom all things hold together. He needs to do that if his depiction of Christ is going to be fully biblical, but it's a much harder thing to do than just inventing a Christ character who does Christ-like things. So that's our Christological or theological background point. Now a literary background point. A Kappa element in romance. This is the title of an essay Lewis wrote in the 1940s. Kappa is the initial letter of the Greek word krypton, which means cryptic or hidden. So the title of the paper basically means the, the hidden element in story. That's what romance here means. Lewis wrote an essay called The Hidden Element in Story. Now this should alert us to the possibility that there may be more going on in Narnia than meets the eye. The only problem is most people don't know about this essay because it was never published in Lewis's lifetime. It actually exists only in note form. But he did later write up those notes and publish them under a different title, On Stories. And in On Stories, he says this. To be stories at all, stories must be series of events. But it must be understood that this series, or the plot as we call it, is only really a net whereby to catch something else. The real theme may be, and perhaps usually is, something that has no sequence in it. Something other than a process and much more like a state or a quality. A state or a quality, that's often the real meaning of a, of a well-told romance or story. Not just the plot, not just the sequence of events. If it was only the plot, why would you ever read a story more than once? Because you, you can remember the plot well enough. You go back and back to your favorite stories many times in the course of your life 
Not because you've forgotten what happens. You can remember that well enough. But because you like how it happens. You like where it happens. You like the whole world in which these happenings happen. You just like breathing in the oxygen of that imagined world. You like going to the Netherfield Ball with Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. You like, you like the deathliness of Hamlet. That's one of Lewis's examples. A great storyteller gives you a pervasive atmosphere or flavor. And you like occupying that imaginative space. There are authors who give us just plot and no atmosphere. I don't mean to criticize Agatha Christie when I say that her stories are mostly plot and not atmosphere. You read Agatha Christie to find out who committed the murder. And once you've worked out who done it, you've got nearly everything the book has to give you. You tend not to read Agatha Christie's more than once. But a great novel you will read many times. You just like occupying that qualitative space. But that's something which is very hard to conceptualize, again, because really it's, it's woven into every part of the story. So that's our fourth background point, the, the kappa element in romance. It's effectively hidden or cryptic from you while you read, because again, you are inside the experience. Only when you close the book or when you abstract yourself from the reading experience temporarily to reflect back on it, will you think, oh yes, Shakespeare has very cleverly conspired everything to generate the atmosphere of deathliness in Hamlet. But for as long as you're living the story, you don't have those literary critical reflections. You're, you're looking along the beam of the story. Okay, that's our fourth background point. Now, fifthly, transferred classicism. This is a term that Lewis coined when he was writing a review of the Oxford Book of Christian Verse. And he's pointing out how in much Christian poetry, up until the 17th century, Christian poets would reach back into the classical past, classical mythology of ancient Greece and ancient Rome, and they would find there in the pantheon of pagan gods and goddesses all sorts of characters and themes that, which they could transfer into their Christian poetry. You would find Venus or Zeus or Apollo, and you'd transfer those characters into your Christian plays or verse, whatever it was that you were writing, and under the veil of those pagan deities, you would say something about Christianity. God, the Christian God, Lewis says, often appears in medieval literature, but incognito, veiled, disguised as Zeus or Jupiter or whoever it may be. And everybody is in the secret, Lewis says. Paganism is actually the religion of poetry through which the author can express at any moment just so much or so little of his real religion, of his Christian faith, as the art requires. This is the best method, Lewis says, of writing poetry which is religious without being devotional. Everyone is in the secret. It's a little bit like Paul on the Areopagus in the, in the book of Acts. I'm pleased to say the same picture is hanging on the wall there. <laughs> uh, you see Paul there is preaching, and in the background you can see the statue of Mars. 
is Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the, the field of Ares. And what is St. Paul doing? You know, he's preaching to the Athenians, quoting their own pagan poetry. God is not far from each one of us, Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And Paul is here quoting two poems about Zeus, one by Aratus, one by Epimenides. The original said, in Zeus we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed Zeus's offspring. Now, of course, Paul is not encouraging the Athenians to worship Zeus. He's transferring, excuse me, he's transferring their own very limited knowledge of divine nature into his presentation of the Christian gospel in order to make his case. That itself is a kind of version of transferred classicism. Okay, so those are our five background points. Let's just very quickly recap what we have said before we come back to the Narnia Chronicles. Lewis could be secretive himself, just personally. Lewis's whole theory of consciousness involved one mode of consciousness that necessarily entailed a kind of hiddenness or invisibility when you look along the beam. We found a, a theological equivalent of that in the, in the all-pervasive principle of cohesion whereby the universe holds together, namely Christ. We're looking along this Christ-drenched universe every minute of every day. We can't get out of it. We found a literary version of that in the pervasive quality of a well-told tale. And then we found how God could be masked behind a pagan veil, dressed up as Zeus or Jupiter or whoever it may be. So those are our five background points. With those in place, I hope it's going to be less of a stretch to believe that Lewis could have been up to something very sophisticated and, and secretive in the Narnia Chronicles. But at this point, we need to remind ourselves that although he is best known for Narnia, he's, he wasn't professionally a writer of fiction. Professionally, of course, he was a writer of literary crit criticism and literary history. This is the biggest book he ever wrote, English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, which I always like to say is a very snappy title. Uh, that must have just shot off the shelves. Uh, it was part of this multi-volume Oxford history of English literature. Lewis abbreviated that to Oh Hell. Uh, this was his Oh Hell volume, and it took him about 15 years to write. Seriously. Can I just do a quick survey? Ask you how many of you have read this book? Uh. Kel, it doesn't count because he's a sort of Lewis specialist. But Okay, how interesting. You've all read Narnia, but really none of you have read this book, apart from Kel. Um, how interesting. Because when Lewis published this book, he wrote to a friend and said, thank goodness I've finished this big academic work I've been engaged in for the last 15 years. And then he adds, it was the top tune all those years. And all the other books I published during that period were just its little twiddly bits. Which means that Narnia and Screwtape and Mere Christianity were, as far as Lewis was concerned, just the little twiddly bits on this massive intellectual enterprise. But we now know Lewis for the twiddly bits, 
and virtually nobody has read the top tune. How ironic. We get things absolutely back to front. If we want to understand the man who wrote Narnia, we need to understand the man who writes this. Then we get him, then we put the, the horse before the cart. We don't let the tail wag the dog. And if you ever do read this book, which I would encourage you to do, actually, because it's very readable, very interesting, very amusing in places, you find that it opens with a long discussion of the new astronomy that came in in the middle of the 16th century, thanks to Nicholas Copernicus, who, as you remember, right in the middle of the 16th century, revolutionizes astronomy with his theory of the heliocentric cosmos, the sun-centered cosmos a theory which was later proved correct by Galileo and Kepler when the telescope was invented about 50 years later. Now, the Copernican revolution in astronomy has been described as possibly the biggest change that there's ever been in the history of human thought. (laughs) Because in one sense, Copernicus relocated Earth. We had thought we were central, Copernicus showed us that actually we are at the edge. The sun is at the center. We go around the sun. The sun does not go around us. There's a very good sermon illustration in that. (laughs) So Copernicus is kind of a big deal. And Lewis certainly thought so, because he wanted to see how the Copernican revolution in astronomy played out in the literature of that period. Because, of course, the kind of cosmos you believe yourself to be living in will have a major effect upon the kinds of stories that you tell. And it's a theme that Lewis returns to in his last academic book, The Discarded Image. Three times in this book, Lewis encourages his readers to take a walk under the sky at night imagining themselves back into the pre-Copernican situation, when you would have believed that the Earth was static and central. And that when you looked up into the night sky, you looked up not into space. The word space was not available to you in the 16th century. It was a, it's a 17th century word. You could not have looked up into space before the time of Copernicus. You would have looked up into the heavens the ranked concentric spheres which rotate around the static and central Earth, each heaven with its own planet and each planet with its own influences which it shed upon the Earth and upon people and events and even the metals in Earth's crust. So let's just very quickly remind ourselves of these seven heavens. The first is the heaven of the moon, then that of Mercury, then Venus in the third heaven, the sun in the brightest heaven of invention, to quote Shakespeare. The sun, remember, was a planet before Copernicus. Then Mars, then Jupiter, and finally in the seventh heaven, Saturn. Still today, occasionally, you hear people talking about how they were in the seventh heaven of delight. Why is it delightful to be in the seventh heaven? I suppose because you're furthest away from Earth at that point away from all its trials and tribulations. If you keep going up, you go through the sphere of the fixed stars, because these are the planets, these are the wandering stars. You go through the sphere of the fixed stars, and then you emerge out of the created order altogether into the home of God. 
this is the image of the universe that we have discarded. That's why Lewis's book is called The Discarded Image. We no longer believe the universe to be like this. We've thrown this out. Though not in every respect, actually. At least in one respect, we refer to it every day of our lives. What's today? Tuesday? Tu, Tyr, is the Norse equivalent of the Roman Mars. <coughs> if you think in Spanish, it's a bit more obvious. Martes. So although we've discarded this image of the cosmos, Lewis himself had not discarded it because it was everywhere presupposed in the literature of the period that he was an expert in. Let me just mention two great medieval poets who use this old scheme all over their work. First of all, Dante in the Divine Comedy. Here's an illustration from Dante's Commedia. And it shows you the seven planetary characters in the order of the days of the week. So here we have the sun in his burning fiery chariot for Sunday. The moon goddess with her silvery gown and crescent moon there for Monday. Tuesday, Mars, Martes with his helmet, his chain mail, the god of war. Here's Mercury. We know he's Mercury because of these wings on his heels there. Mercury the messenger, swift of foot. Then we come to Jupiter. Hueves, Jove, Thor in Norse mythology. That stick that he's holding over his shoulders is, is not just any old rod, but a, a scepter, the kingly staff of office, because Jupiter was above all things the king in, in the symbolism that went with these seven characters. Here we come to Venus for Friday. Venus, the goddess of love creativity, fertility, sexuality. And then we have Saturn. Saturn with his sickle, his scythe, cutting people down. The, the sponsor, symbolically speaking, of death and disaster. So Dante uses this scheme all over his greatest work. And he didn't need to explain it because everybody knew. Nobody had discarded this image at that point. And after Dante, we can turn quickly to Chaucer. In Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, again, the, the planetary characters are all over the place. And this is a page of notes that I found in C.S. Lewis's handwriting. He's making notes about uh, Chaucer's Knight's Tale from the Canterbury Tales. And Lewis points out how in the Knight's Tale, Chaucer uses the planetary characters very interestingly. He doesn't just put them is as actors into the drama, but he weaves the appropriate influences into the plot so that the climax of the Knight's Tale, for instance, happens on a Tuesday, on Martes, the day of Mars. How appropriate for a story about knights. So Lewis has this scholarly and academic interest in the old cosmology. But he also responded to it much more imaginatively. We've already seen how he, how he loved Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God. He had a kind of spiritual uh, empathy with, with this old understanding of the heavens as symbolic and spiritually significant. But he also was actually quite a keen amateur astronomer. He had a telescope on the balcony of his bedroom. He liked going to the local observatory. He would often point out unusual conjunctions of the planets in the night sky. He knew his stars and his planets very intimately. 
And then he also responds to this old scheme imaginatively. I mean, he wrote a trilogy of novels all about interplanetary travel. This is the first book in the trilogy, set on Mars. The second book is set on Venus. And in the third book, the planetary characters actually come down to Earth. They're described as angels or gods, emissaries of the, of the one true God in that book. It's all very explicit and you can't miss it. But why was Lewis so interested? He says this, the characters of the planets seem to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, which is especially worthwhile in our own generation. Of Saturn, we know more than enough. But who does not need to be reminded of Jove, Jupiter? Now, these are no small claims, are they? He's not saying these, this is just a medieval curiosity of, of merely historic interest. He says, no, they have a permanent value as spiritual symbols and that they are especially worthwhile in his own generation. His own generation, of course, was the generation that went through the First World War. Many thousands of Lewis's contemporaries were cut down with Saturn's sickle between 1914 and 1918. Lewis himself was very nearly one of them. He was a teenage officer in the British Army during the First World War and was very nearly killed. He was blown up during the spring offensive of 1918. A shell fell in his trench, obliterating the man next to him. Lewis had an out-of-body experience. He thought he was dead. He carried around in his body for the rest of his life certain portions of shrapnel that embedded themselves in his skin. And he would later refer to much of the culture of the 1920s and 30s as Saturnocentric, fixated upon Saturnine qualities of death and disaster, pessimism, cynicism, a very natural response to the huge trauma of the Great War. But although it was understandable, it wasn't actually, as far as Lewis was concerned, an eternal truth about the nature of the universe. The universe is not finally Saturnine, but jovial. Who does not need to be reminded of Jupiter, the king? That's the best spiritual symbol of the seven. The universe is most like Jupiter. Even though all of them have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, they're not all equally valuable. So you see where I'm going with this. When Lewis came to write the Narnia Chronicles, I believe he used these seven spiritual symbols again. He had used them explicitly in the trilogy. Here in Narnia, he uses them implicitly. He takes each symbol in turn and uses it for two main purposes. First of all, to give himself a kappa element, a pervasive tone or flavor to each book, but secondly, to depict the Christological reality of that world, so that Aslan takes on himself the particular properties and characteristics of the, of the given planet, but those characteristics are also spread abroad in the rest of the world of Narnia in each case so that there's a, a kind of harmony or resonance between the Christ character and the total Narnian cosmos, which, which Aslan is the god of. 
So we don't have time to go through all seven books to explain how I think this scheme works out. But let's very quickly go through the first three. And that means we start out with Jupiter and Jupiter, the planet and the god. The planet, you can see here, has in the southeast corner here a, a, a perpetually raging storm on its surface, which is called Jupiter's great red spot or the great eye of Jupiter. The, the diameter of that eye is greater than the diameter of Earth. You can fit the whole of our planet inside that circle. That <laughs> shows you how massive Jupiter is. Now, this, at this point, we come back to the, that poem that I was reading at 11.30 at night back in February 2003 when I came across certain lines about Jupiter that Lewis himself had written, which made me pause and made me think. And these are the lines that I read. Of wrath ended and woes mended, of winter past and guilt forgiven, and good fortune, Jove is master. I read these words and I did a double take, particularly about those five words, winter past and guilt forgiven, because that stopped me in my tracks and made me think of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, which is a story all about the passing of winter and the forgiving of guilt. I mean, that's kind of a five word summary of the, of the basic events of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. The white witch has made it always winter, but never Christmas. Everybody longs for the happy days of jollification before this hundred years winter was set, set in. And guilt is forgiven. Edmund, the, the traitor, his guilt is forgiven. So I look much more closely at these lines to do with Jupiter in this planet's poem and across the rest of Lewis's work. And a great deal of the imagery associated with Jupiter seems to make awfully good sense of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe. I mean, principally, kingliness. We've already seen how Jupiter has the scepter over his shoulder, the kingly staff of office. And the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is all about kingship, isn't it? The children, you remember, when they get into the wardrobe for the first time, they put on the fur coats, and we're told the fur coats looked more like royal robes than coats when they put them on. And that's an indication of where the story is going to eventuate in the grand coronation at the end of the story. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. The story is really a clash of kingship between Edmund and Peter. Edmund has been ensnared by the White Witch. And we always tend to recall the Turkish delight, don't we? That sticks in the mind for some reason. But actually, the Turkish delight isn't the main reason for Edmund's treachery. It's just the bait on the hook. And what reels Edmund in is the prospect of becoming the king. That's what the witch says to him. I want a boy who will be prince and later on the king of Narnia after I'm gone, she says. Edmund keeps thinking about becoming the king of Narnia so he can pay Peter back for being a beast to him. Terrible case of sibling rivalry, this story. Peter, on the other hand, is taken by Aslan and he's shown the castle and the four thrones. And Aslan says to Peter, you, O oh man, will be high king over all the rest. Peter himself is going to be the high king over all the rest of his brothers and sisters, because Edmund will eventually be redeemed. His guilt will be forgiven. And how is it forgiven? By Aslan. 
Remember how Aslan is introduced. The children don't know who he is in this first book. They think he might be a regular man, but they're told, no, Aslan is not a man. He's the king of the beasts. Don't you know who's the king? The beavers say to the children, he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king. Repeatedly, his kingship is emphasized. And we're later told he's got a royal crown, a royal standard, a royal pavilion, all these royal accoutrements. His kingship is constantly emphasized. And how does he demonstrate the summit of true kingship? By dying for Edmund's sake. Now, what's that got to do with Jupiter, if anything? Isn't that just a convenient kind of Sunday school lesson that Lewis inserts into the story so that it will be edifying for his young readers? I'm not saying that it's not edifying. I'm not saying that it isn't there partly for those purposes. I'm saying the fundamental reason has to do with Lewis's decision to structure the whole story out of jovial symbolism. And what's it got to do with Jove or Jupiter? Well, in the same year that Lewis began writing The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, he published another book on the poetry of his great friend Charles Williams. And in that book, Lewis says this, when Charles Williams writes of Jupiter's red-pierced planet, Williams assumes that the huge reddish spot which astronomers observe on the surface of Jupiter is a wound, and the redness is that of blood. Jupiter, the planet of kingship, thus wounded, becomes another ectype of the divine king wounded on Calvary. So this shows us very explicitly that Lewis associates jovial symbolism with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, which, of course, he's reworking at the heart of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Aslan's death on the stone table and his resurrection later on. Take a look at this medieval woodcut showing you Jupiter. Here is... Jupiter, so labelled, there he is enthroned in the heavens. And down on earth are the people who exhibit the jovial influences, which is why we have a coronation scene here. Once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. This is why we have another man here kneeling for judgment. Is his guilt going to be forgiven or not? And in the background, you can just make out, I hope, horses and hounds who are off hunting the white heart the white stag, which all medieval huntsmen would go after because it was the noblest quarry that kings and queens would hunt for in medieval romances. And recall the, the final chapter of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the hunting of the white stag. Can all these jovial elements have found their way into The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by accident? Is it not rather safer to conclude that the whole story is designed out of jovial symbolism so that the book as a whole has that as its kappa element and moreover Aslan can be the true Jupiter according to that technique of transferred classicism by means of which the Christian God is veiled behind a, a pagan mask is that not more likely well Perhaps they, these things arose unbidden to Lewis's mind because he was so steeped in them. Perhaps, yes, let's conclude it was all accidental. But then could it have been accidental six further times over? Prince Caspian is strangely martial. This is a story of war. 
the civil war of Narnia, the great war of deliverance, as it's called. If you saw the recent film version, you won't have missed the martial elements. They really went to town on the battles. The word martial itself appears several times in this story, but never again in any of the other Narnia books. Okay, you might say, but, you know, there are battles in some of the other Narnia books, aren't there? So what does that do to your theory? (laughs) And, of course, I would admit that there are battles in several of the other Narnia books, but I would deny that they are presented in martial terms. But be that as it may, another major theme of imagery running through the story of Prince Caspian has to do with nothing to do with battles at all, but everything to do with trees and forests. Here they are on the cover of the book. Caspian is just about to be knocked off his horse by that falling tree. Lucy tries to wake the trees. The trees come to the final battle. What's that got to do with Mars? What's that got to do with anything? (laughs) Isn't it just evidence that Lewis threw anything which came to hand into these stories in a haphazard and random kind of way? Well, I knew nothing about the detailed history of Mars because my classical education is very weak. But it didn't take much digging at all to discover that Mars, as the Romans conceived of him, was not always and only the god of war, but was originally a vegetation deity associated with trees and forests, and he was called Mars Silvanus. Lewis, whose classical education by the age of eight was greater than mine will ever be, knew this like the back of his hand. Hence the dryads and the hamadryads and indeed the sylvans that appear in Prince Caspian. Sylvans never again appear in any of the other Narnia books. Hence the fact that it's Aslan who can wake the trees. Lucy tries to wake them but can't until Aslan is present. Aslan in this book is the true Mars. Not only does he wake the trees but he utters the great war cry that summons everyone to the final battle. And the children, as they learn to love and relate with Aslan, they take on his martial characteristics. The boys harden into knights. The girls romp in the Bacchanalian revelry with the swaying trees and the growing vines. Here's an image of Mars from the ruins of Pompeii. And it shows you Mars in his twin capacities. As god of war, yes, with his shield and his spear and his helmet, He's standing against this backdrop of burgeoning vegetation. The month of March is sacred to Mars. That's why we call it March. Because in the third month of the year, the weather is getting good enough for armies to march off to battle. But the trees are also coming back to life after winter. So this accounts for for why Lewis structures Prince Caspian in the way that he does. The whole story is designed to bespeak martial qualities. And here's a nice image from Prince Caspian showing you the two qualities, the two main qualities at once. In the foreground, we have the single combat. In the background, we have the gathering trees. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is our third point of summary. I believe this is Lewis's son book. You could almost guess it from the title. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the journey towards the place of the rising sun. When they encounter Aslan at the eastern edge of the world, he scatters light from his mane. Lucy sees him flying in a sunbeam. On Goldwater Island, 
Aslan appears, we're told, shining as if in bright sunlight, though the sun had in fact gone in. Because he is the true sun. He's the source of all illumination and true gold in this book. But what clinches it has nothing to do with those very obvious solar qualities, but everything to do with dragons. The ship, you remember, is shaped like a dragon. Eustace is turned into a dragon. They see the great sea serpent. There are several other dragons in this story when you begin to look closely. Why all these dragons? What's that got to do with the sun? What's that got to do with anything? Isn't it just evidence of Lewis throwing things together any old how? <laughs> no! Because in Greek mythology, the god of light was Apollo, and Apollo was famously a slayer of dragons. If you know your Homer, Homer's hymn to Apollo features a great episode where Apollo slays a dragon, and this is a statue presenting that episode. Apollo is killing that dragon, that miniature dragon. It looks like a lizard to us, but... We've got to imagine that this is a god. He's not just a man. So in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Eustace is turned into a dragon, this is a still from the recent terrible movie version. Um, <laughs> this is the one good frame in the entire movie. <laughs> uh, you can see here, this is Eustace's eyeball after he's been endragoned. And there in the reflection in his eyeball, you can just make out the approaching figure of Aslan. Aslan is going to come and rip off the dragon skin and turn Eustace back into a boy again. He is the true Apollo, the true sun god, true god of light. It's not a hodgepodge. It's not a mishmash. Everything is minutely imagined so that the whole book conspires to generate the solar atmosphere. And Aslan sums it up in his own person, just as Christ, the incarnate word of God, sums up the creative word of God, which has made all things and is sustaining all things. There is an imaginative harmony or resonance between the two things going on in the book at once. Let me very quickly summarize, uh, just list for you the remaining four books. The Silver Chair, of course, is the moon story. Again, you could guess this from the title, because silver is the metal of the moon. And this is a story all about wetness and wanderings and lunacy. Here's the moon goddess driving her chariot across the heavens. The horse and his boy is the Mercury story, all about language and twins and theft and boxing and running. Here's Mercury the messenger. This is why Aslan is swift of foot in the horse and his boy, because he's the true Mercury. And the magician's nephew is the Venus story, full of creativity and laughter and Mothers healed by magic gardens taken from western gardens and beautifully intoxicating women like Jadis from Charn. The dem fine woman, the dem fine woman, as Uncle Andrew says. And the last battle, of course, is the Saturn book because in this book, Father Time himself with his sickle brings Narnia to an end. Father Time and Saturn are the same character, as Lewis points out in the discarded image. Here is Father Time, uh, a statue of him in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. It is he who brings Narnia to an end. And in an early typescript of the Narnia Chronicles, Father Time is introduced not as Father Time, but as the god Saturn. It's there in the typescript. But 
by the time Lewis came to publish the Chronicles, he thought that's making it too obvious. But let, let's, not, let's not call this character the god Saturn. Let's just call him Father Time and bank on people not knowing that they are the same character. So, if this theory is correct, why would Lewis have done it? I think three main reasons. Firstly, fun. I mean, it must just have been very enjoyable to him. He had all this imagery at his fingertips. He'd been steeping himself in it for decades. He didn't have to do any major research. It must have been just hugely entertaining for him to to do this and to do it secretly. But why would he be secretive about it? Well, because... This imagery is not something he asks us to look at from the outside. Rather, it is something he asks us to look along from the inside. It is the pervasive atmosphere or flavor or tone of each book. It's the kappa element. It's the hidden element. Hidden not because it's unimportant, but because it's supremely important. It's that thing which will keep us going back to the books over and over again if we like that atmosphere. And I've noticed in my conversations with people that lots of people think, yes, they are very differently flavored books. And there is one in particular that I like very much, people say. I I certainly find that myself. My favorite has always been the Dawn Treader. But be that as it may, that's the literary reason why Lewis would have done this. The Kappa element, It it comports entirely with his stated purposes as a literary critic. Uh, Much more importantly, as we must remember, he says the whole Narnia series is about Christ. And this planetary symbolism, these seven symbols of spiritual value, allow Lewis, by the technique of transferred classicism, to depict his Christ character in two modes at once. Aslan can personify the qualities of the given planet, But those qualities are everywhere spread abroad across the rest of the tale and in the children who, as they relate to Aslan, grow up into those qualities themselves. They become kings and queens under Jupiter in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. They become knights and woodlanders in Prince Caspian. They become able to drink light, drinkable light, they say, at the eastern edge of the world in the Dawn Treader and so on seven times. It's a very subtle way of depicting discipleship, of growing up into Christ, of participating in the divine attributes, to quote Peter's epistle. This is a very important theological theme for Lewis, that theosis, divinization, we, we become sons and daughters of God. And naturally we begin to suggest our parentage. On the surface then, Narnia looks like a hodgepodge. Yeah, Tolkien got that much right. But then the real world itself often looks like a hodgepodge, doesn't it? It looks when we see accidents happen and all sorts of inexplicable things occur. Can we really believe that God is in charge? Can we really believe that there is intelligent design in this universe and God is working his purposes out? Doesn't everything suggest the opposite? Very often it does. But the Christian belief is, no, that God's divine purposes are at work. The universe is teeming with creative intelligence. If only we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. 
The heavens are telling the glory of God. There, there is no speech. Their voice is not heard with the literal ear, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Everything speaks of God's loving, creative purpose for those who have the God-given faith to perceive it, down to the curve of every wave and the flight of every insect. And Lewis in Narnia gives us a marvelous imaginative correlative of that Christian truth. Thank you very much. Sorry, I went on a bit longer, but um, yes, sir. Would you say, as a father, that, that much, having this knowledge, and I, I want to buy your book, should that change the way that I might read the story to the children, or not at all? I would hope what not. What impact will this yeah. have on, on yeah. read the, children? Repeat the question. Yes, you okay. The question is, um, what impact will this have on a parent reading the books to their child? I would say really no effect except to make you want to read them all the more to your child. Because it will, I hope, show that these books are much more carefully created and composed than we might previously have given them credit for being. So all the more reason to pass them on to the next generation, because these works are, they're not just well-told tales, they're not just Christianly edifying, they are mini-masterpieces of medieval scholarship as well. They're even better than we thought they were. <laughs> and we already thought they were pretty darn good. So I would not, if I was re reading these stories, and I've read them to my nieces and nephews, I, I never mention a thing, actually, even about the biblical parallels. You know, the obvious biblical parallels. I never say anything about that, because I think that frustrates Lewis's purposes. He's trying to get us to read imaginatively and mythically not allegorically he, he denied that the books were allegories there's not a close one-to-one -one parallel relationship between elements in Narnia and elements in the Bible that's not how the books are constructed they don't need to be deciphered or decrypted in that, in that sense and if, if the title of my book the Narnia Code suggests that, that I myself am implying that the books need to be decoded then please ignore that that's not what I mean to suggest by the code I mean something not that it needs to be cracked like a cipher. I'm suggesting a, like a DNA code, a genetic code, that this is a code sort of hardwired into every cell of the story, just as our DNA is hardwired into every cell of our body. And that, and that can't be cracked in that sense. You can't, like, you can't smash the, the nut and throw the shell away and have the kernel. That's not the kind of code we're talking about. It's the, it's the secret of life, to quote Crick and Watson. It's the secret of the imaginative life of these books. And not just the imaginative life either, but the, the theological life. I think this reveals Lewis's theological imagination working in, in, in brilliant harmony. So I would say nothing about it. And when the child is old enough to ask questions or shows interest, you know, by all means then say something about it, but not until then. That would destroy, frustrate the whole reading experience. Question over here? Yes. I'm presuming 
process of elimination is that the silver chair thus is, is the lunar? Yes. How does Aslan's characterization in that particular novel, what, what is the, your association with mm. The question is about the silver chair and how, how that has a lunar atmosphere or a lunar symbolism running throughout it. Excuse me. Well, remember how in that story Aslan is confined to his own high country above the clouds and he doesn't come down to Narnia. Now, that's because according to the medieval conception, everything above the orbit of the moon was perfect, certain, immutable. But below the orbit of the moon, everything was subject to doubt, inconstancy, to flux and change. And that divide, that sublunary, translunary divide, was something that Lewis wrote about extensively in the discarded image. Now that's really, that accounts for the structure of the silver chair. That Aslan is, as it were, the, the translunary, in the translunary realm where everything is perfect and certain. And it's interesting how in Aslan's country we're told there's not a breath of air. But he warns Jill and Eustace, the air will thicken as you go down into Narnia. Take care that it does not confuse your minds. But it does confuse their minds and they forget all the signs and they nearly completely abort the whole mission. And finally, down in the underworld, they come across this prince dressed in black clothes who's raving like a lunatic one hour in every 24. Those are just some of the, of the lunar symbols that Lewis is working with. Um, I could go on at great length, uh, but I mustn't. There are no doubt other questions, but that gives you a, you know, a tiny sketch of, of some of the structure of that book and, and its lunar properties. Um, yeah. That'll, that's, that'll do for now. One more question. Yes. I know G.K. Chesterton was influential to Lewis. Yes. And in Orthodoxy, there's a chapter, I believe, entitled The Ethics of Elfland. Yes. Where Chesterton writes that the reason fairy tales tell you that rivers run red is because you need to be reminded that they actually run blue. Hmm. It is the fairy tale that that sparks the wonder to make you realize reality is actually wondrous. Yes. And it seems to me that Narnia has is the personification of that Chesterton chapter. Mm. That Narnia draws you into wonder to help you remember that this world is actually the wonder. Is that a correct analysis of those? Things? Yes, absolutely. Do I need to repeat much, I don't much of that? <laughs> For the sake of the recording. But um, absolutely, yes. The ethics of Elfland is perhaps the greatest chapter of that great, great book, Orthodoxy, by Chesterton. And yes, Lewis knew his Chesterton very well and is quoting from him all the time, either explicitly or implicitly. And yes, a lot of what Lewis says in his own language, basically echoing that very sentiment. I mean, Lewis puts it not in terms of rivers running red and blue, but of you know enchanted woods, making all real woods a little enchanted that the child imagines that his, his beef stew is, is bison, that he's slain with his own bow and arrow, and that makes every meal go down in the nursery so much more easily because it's been dipped in story beforehand. Those are very Louisian sentiments, which were originally Chestertonian. Uh, yes, very much so. And on the question of the planets more specifically, I don't know if you know the man who was Thursday, one of Chesterton's early novels, 
the man who was Thursday, the man who was Jeudi, Jueves, um, the seven members of the the Council of Anarchists. They are each dressed up in clothing relating to one of the seven days of the week. Um, and I think a lot of the imagery that Lewis plays with, particularly in the Ransom trilogy, actually, but by extension across the whole body of his work, is you know is engendered somewhat thanks to Chesterton in The Man Who Was Thursday. Yeah, that's on my mind because I'm going to be speaking about The Man Who Was Thursday this very Thursday. Um, <laughs>